This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Simon Johnson, who's the Ronald Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at the MIT Sloan School of Management, and was previously Chief Economist of the IMF, and just co-authored a fascinating newly published book with his MIT colleague, Daron Adramoglu, that are Power and Progress, or 1,000-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. Welcome, Simon. Thanks for having me. So you're British, you were born in the UK. How did you first get interested in economics? Well, I, I was looking for engineering, but you know, on a, on a grander scale, I think, and, and economics captivated me early on as something that has the potential to address really, really big issues. So I, I was lucky to fall into it when I did, and, and lucky to get the education that, that I received. And I think it's, it's been all fascinating questions since then. And you were uh, an MIT economics PhD student certainly the best place to get uh, an economics PhD. Um, were you influenced by anything, uh, in, say, your childhood? I, I know for some that grew up like in the 1970s UK, that, that was sort of uh, an important experience for them, or you know, those that grew up sort of under uh, when Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. Did any of that, was any of that formative for you in, in terms of your sort of outlook and kind of global growth and, and a lot of the topics that you've written on, politics as well? Yes, I, th- I think in retrospect, uh, I'm from Sheffield in the north of England, a city that was, you know, a, an economic powerhouse. Uh, my, my family was involved in making screws on one side and, and making steel on, on the other side. And, and by the time I was aware of, you know, the economy, things had turned downhill. I mean, all, all of the industry there was, was, was troubled. There was a lot of job losses. People weren't moving away. So I, I think I'm trying to, un- I'm still trying to understand exactly what went wrong there and, and why we lost so many jobs and, and, and how we should... It does give me a bit of a lens for thinking about economic decline, but also recoveries and, and more sustained growth and innovation and entrepreneurship elsewhere. So I want to uh, get into your research agenda. Uh, you've written a lot of highly influential articles in political economy. How would you describe your research agenda? You've got over 80,000 80, citations. Um, that, that is um, uh, you know, quite uh, an accomplishment. You co-authored uh, the Colonial Origins of Comparative Development, which is both uh, your own most cited uh, paper as well as uh, Drone Adjimoglu's uh, most cited paper. Um, you've been at the center of all this groundbreaking research on institutions and growth, which has been like, highly influential for several decades now. It certainly had a lot of influence on um, the, the World Bank and the IMF and, and their approach to promoting economic growth. How would you describe your research agenda in your own words? Well, I think we're looking for the, the causes of, of poverty and wealth uh, around, around the world. And, and many people, of course, have done that before, and we're standing on their shoulders. But there's a lot of really interesting questions, including, you know, after the collapse of colonial empires, when technology, in principle, could have flowed freely to many places, and, and many places around the world could, in principle and in theory, have become much richer, they didn't. So why not? What are the actual impediments that these countries face? And, and, and what could we do you know, in terms of academia or in terms of public policy or in terms of the IMF, what could we do that would actually help uh, the billions of people around the world who want to live better? You're uh, your chief economist uh, at the IMF um, uh, right uh, after Ann Kruger or uh, remind me again in, in sort of your time at the IMF, like what, what was the big thing happening um, then? 
So I, I became Chief Economist of the IMF in early 2007. I held that job until the end of August 2008. So this was the run-up to the global financial crisis. I'd worked there previously for two years under Raghu Rajan, who, of course, you know, is a brilliant financial thinker. And, and that he pulled the IMF and the part of the IMF that I was in, the research department, towards thinking about the interaction between finance and, and macroeconomics. And when I got that job, I was uh, Raghu's successor, we were immediately, you know, the IMF, uh, my department was in the hot seat in terms of understanding what is going on with mortgage-backed securities, with uh, credit default swap spreads, how will this spread around the world, what are the sensible uh, interventions that could be made. So it was, a, it was a ringside seat for the events that became, after I left, somewhat devastating to, to, to millions of people. And, and from that, I, I, I took away a, a, lot of a lot of questions and a lot of interest in trying to resolve those questions with regard to making the financial system safer. You wrote a, a book, uh, 13 Bankers, and on that whole, um, really that whole episode, uh, and, and you've written quite a bit on um, uh, financial cycles uh, and business cycles as well. Um, now, your, your latest book, uh, Power and Progress, uh, it is primarily on economic growth, political economy, uh, and technology. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the book um, and, and the point that um, you're trying to make uh, with Jerome in yeah, so I, th I think the book, both for Daron and, 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 and me, is, is a bringing together of work we've done on political economy together and work we've done on technology, which tend to be somewhat separate. So we've merged these things, and, and I think it's the, so it's the political economy of technological choice. And it asks the question, first and foremost, is technology predestined? It's just something that happens to you, and, and we think the answer is no. There's a lot of choices in there. And secondly, is it possible to redirect technological change? Can you push it one way or another? We, we see influential individuals doing that. We see companies doing that. Can public policy do it? Can civil society do it? And if so, which direction, in which direction would you like to push it? Got it. So, so there's like these topics like you know, directed technological change, distorted technological change. Um, you know, to me, it sounds a little bit like you know, the words industrial policy. Like, to what degree like, can policymakers really sort of shape industries um, and, and direct technology? And, and you know, what are their limitations? Like, to what degree should they really be involved in, uh, in, in directing technology? Obviously, you know, industrial policy has been a controversial uh, set of words in, uh, in economics for quite some time, um, certainly less controversial in, in some circles um, versus others. But I'm curious, what is your thesis on topics like the you know, directed technological change and industrial policy? Well, policymakers definitely can shape um, technology and, and, and innovation. They do it with the tax code. They do it through advantages for certain industry. They do it through the Department of Defense. I think the really interesting and, and, and still to be totally resolved question is, can they tilt it in, in, a, in a way that would be you know, more broadly in the public interest? So it's not about capture. It's not about uh, lobbying. But it's about more good jobs, for example. And you know, we, we think the answer is yes. We think it's not easy. Uh, we think it, it's you know, quite a struggle, requires a fair amount of debate and argument. That's one reason we wrote the book, to try and push that debate forward. But, but we think that, for example, if you think about uh, the way that artificial intelligence is being developed now, a lot of emphasis on machine intelligence, which is a euphemism for replacing workers and replacing them in a way that doesn't raise the marginal uh, worker productivity of those who remain employed in the same enterprise. Um, we would rather tilt it towards um, machine usefulness, which is a, a term that, that, that we've invented, but we're standing on the shoulders of a lot of computer science people who came before us who say the point of the machine should be made to augment human capabilities, not to replace them, but to augment them. I think it's easy to see that in history, which way we've gone in various moments. It's easy to talk about the creation of new tasks, stimulating the demand for labor and potentially 
raising productivity and wages, but can that be done in a more deliberate policy-driven fashion? I think that's a fair question, and, and that's, what, that's what now lies before us, trying to sort out that question. So there's a, a popular set of words in sort of the labor economics and technological change literature, which is skill-biased technological change. And in the sort of introduction of new you know, AI um, tools, things like ChatGPT, you know, generative AI, there's some who argue that it's actually going to be skilled jobs that are going to be uh, severely impacted. Um, you know, for example, coders, those in the service economy, you know, those that are writing things, I guess, in, in their service jobs, that, that those jobs, um, you know, we, we don't need as many coders anymore, or, or um, you know, we'll have fewer software engineers that will use things like Copilot and ChatGPT to, to code faster. I'm curious, what is your view on that? Uh, do you think we're sort of in for this reversal where, you know, skilled workers have done so well for, for so long over their sort of un, unskilled, less educated counterparts? Do you think, like, AI is going to trigger a big reversal there? Or, or do you think just broadly, you know, both skilled and unskilled work is, is sort of in jeopardy here? That will have robots replacing unskilled workers as, as well um, uh, pr pretty quickly. If you read the novels of Isaac Asimov, which I really do advise to everybody, <laughs> and because he had a brilliant imagination of uh, the robot novels in particular, what, what, what would happen? Um, in the 1940s and 1950s when he was writing those, the thinking was that robots would, would take over manual jobs first, and then later as the robots became more evolved, they'd move on to cognitive tasks. I think what we've discovered, including in the last uh, two years, is the opposite, that, that, that artificial intelligence is quite good or, or better than humans at some cognitive tasks, and really not as good as humans and won't be for a long time at much more manual tasks. And that's probably because we've been walking around and walking through, walking across rough terrain for millions of years, us and our ancestors. But, um, you know, abstract thinking is tens of thousands of years old and we've only been going to meetings, writing memos to each other, you know, for a few hundred years of the modern, of the modern sort. So I think if you look at it, if, the, if you're unskilled, or I would call it manual work and, and cognitive work, the pressure is on the cognitive jobs. Now, within that, there's, there's a lot of, variation already developing some occupations it seems like it's the most highly skilled highly paid people who will benefit but in other places they're the ones who are going to get fired and, the, and then people who own the capital are going to replace them with much cheaper labor so i think it's absolutely all in flux and our main point is it doesn't have to be about replacing workers it can be about augmenting the capabilities including the augmenting the capabilities of lower skilled workers in with some sort of uh, cognitive function and that's really interesting because then there could be much more by way of productivity gains individual productivity gains, economy-wide productivity gains, and wage gains that would filter down. So this doesn't have to be a zero-sum game or some people win, some people lose. Many more people could win than lose in this instance, but that may not be the default course we're on currently. That's uh, fascinating. I'm curious, what do you think about this whole um, argument that we've seen over the, maybe the past decade um, gained, I think, some traction in, I think, public intellectual circles that this new era of AI is due to unleash massive unemployment, and hence we need something like universal basic income to sort of step in and, and help those that are significantly displaced um, from this uh, technological innovation in, in AI. Yeah, we're not big fans of universal basic income, UBI, primarily because we think people like to work. Now, it doesn't mean that they have to work 60 hours a week in, in backbreaking jobs. But work seems to be important as a source of income, a source of identity, a source of political voice. And uh, UBI, I think, lets the technology industry off the hook 
with regard to its impact. And I would rather they be on the hook and be responsible and not point fingers at other people and say, right, it's your job to take care of all these people who've gotten fired. I think it's also the case, by the way, that in an economy like the US, you don't get that much unemployment. What you get is people push down to very low wage jobs and they fall out of the labor force. So labor force participation declines. We've certainly seen plenty of that from the digital transformation of the past four decades. So I would not put too much weight on a UBI type approach. Interesting. And, and you, know, you think about people like Milton Friedman is writing you know, in the early 1960s in Capitalism and Freedom, you know, he famously sort of endorsed uh, the negative income tax, which is sort of like a universal basic income um, and I think he famously had, had some sort of analogy that like, you know, better to, you know, pay people, um, you know, uh, some, something like an EBI um, type um, payment rather than to have them, you know, shovel holes um, and, and fill them up again. Yeah, the, I think he, he had some story about some Soviet, uh, you know, in the Soviet economy, there was you know, people sort of that were doing something like this. Um, I guess, um, like, do you think that like it, it makes sense to, um, I guess, direct people toward un, more undirected, uh, more unproductive types of, of work in, in that sense, or do, do you think that that sort of view has, has any um, validity? Or, or I mean, obviously, it's much more complicated than that. But um, do, do you think, to any degree, um, these sorts of in, in industrial sort of policy type ideas are sort of pushing people toward more unproductive forms of, of work, where maybe? It makes more sense to have something like, uh, I guess, a more uh, generous kind of uh, a redistribution sort of system. Maybe not like EBI, but maybe uh, a more enhanced earning, earning income tax credit or something like that to respond to this. Or. Yeah, I, I haven't seen I haven't seen anybody really proposing truly unproductive work. I mean, yeah, there's a question of how much you subsidize. Um, the construction of new uh, chip fabs, for example, in the U.S. And there's a very interesting debate about how much more expensive it is to build such fabs in the U.S. versus in Taiwan, for example. The Taiwanese people say it's four times expensive. My expert friends at in MIT say it's 20% more expensive. So we're, we're, we're going to find out. You there's know, sort of a worker shortage thing with, with that as well. Well, so... so That's one of the complaints that I think TSMC and, and some of these chip companies have with... So, so, so when you drill, yes, they do say that. When you drill down into it, it's very interesting. So they use PhD uh, qualified engineers on the shop floor in Taiwan, which is not, and it's not clear to everyone that that's a super productive use of, of PhDs. And there may be a, um, a malleability of labor and a willingness to, of highly skilled people to do mundane or even routine tasks. In Taiwan, you also hear that about South Korea compared to the United States. So I think we are attempting to find out um, how, what kind of training is needed, where those people will come from, these are good jobs in the fabs. Who's going to get the job and how much education do you need to be effective uh, in the clean rooms and, and so on? Very, very interesting and, and important questions. But I, I'm pretty optimistic. That, I mean, in, in, in this country, which is a, a big country with a lot of people who want to work hard, I think we will find plenty of talented people. I think the, the issue on the, back to just Friedman for a second, I, I think that the, the question that, that we, we, we grapple with is, first of all, are we taxing labor too much? payroll taxes, raising the cost of labor at a time when people are thinking, hmm, machines versus labor, which one do I want to go for? I think that that's an important issue. And, and I think also that we have a lot of issues around the care economy, around how much are you willing to pay out of the public purse for home health aides who take care of people who have really terrible health problems. You don't want to send them to hospital. That's way more expensive. Somebody has to take care of them. Their families can't afford to do it by themselves. How much are you willing to pay? Can you pay a living wage? And if we don't, who really goes in, into that work? So I wouldn't call that at all unproductive work, but I, I think it, it is a massive question of how we handle additional longevity, how we handle many extra years of health, but also some ill health at the end of life. Those, those are tough questions. So it seems like, that, like on, the, on the whole tax 
side of things. It seems like in recent years, there's obviously been a lot of interest uh, in taxing wealth. Uh, there, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, or a big push from folks like Emmanuel Saez, Thomas Piketty, Gabriel Zuckman on, on sort of things like a wealth tax. Um, and it's, I guess, more in the sort of uh, inequality frame uh, than perhaps in the sort of, um, it's certainly related to the, the sort of AI and, and gains to capital discussion that we're talking about now. But I'm curious, like, uh, there's been people like you know, Bill Gates have talked about like having a robot tax. What do you think about that idea? So I, I do think the tax code is a bit too tilted towards encouraging machines versus hiring labor. So I think that can be redressed in, in various ways. But in, in, in contrast to those people who are arguing for redistribution, so let the productive process do its thing, look at the distributed outcomes, and then do some tax and, and, and subsidy uh, welfare payments if you don't like the outcomes. We are much more about tilting or redirecting technological progress to change the outcomes that way. And that's primarily because, you know, I, I don't think a place like the U.S. is ever going to do a lot of redistribution. And I think the nature of work and the kinds of jobs you get, that's important in and of itself. And redistribution, just, of course, doesn't address that. That just gives you a bit more money, money for, for, for the work that you've done. So thinking about how to redirect technological progress, that's our main agenda in, in this book. Got it. But Sort of on this question of massive unemployment, I guess the unemployment rate is like between three and a half percent and four percent um, currently. Um, you don't really see there being like a, a massive surge in unemployment, say, anytime soon, or? Well, I, I think uh, my, my, my uh, former colleague and good friend Mike Musa, who sadly uh, departed us, left us, liked to say, uh, you know, his main advice for anybody who worked at the IMF was never forecast a number and a date in the same forecast, right? So. Look, I, I think the chat GPT is a wake-up call and there's a speed of change in some of these cognitive tasks and the capabilities of AI that, that is disconcerting. Because we, we know, particularly in a economy like the US, we can handle a lot of different shocks thrown at us, but there is a speed of adjustment issue. So I don't think we're gonna face mass unemployment. I do think there's gonna be pressure on some jobs that were previously good jobs. And I do worry that we may not be creating, that's automation, and that's a natural part of economic development, the offset and what we were good at in the early 20 to mid 20th century was creating a lot of new tasks so that people had jobs, were employed, and we could absorb all the people who moved out of agriculture, all the jobs that were um, eliminated when Henry Ford automated uh, car production. We didn't lose jobs in, in the car business. We, we gained jobs in, in, in the peak uh, phase of, of, of that, of that um, transition. But it takes some time. Electricity uh, was adopted over 30 or 40 years, electrification of factories and production. AI seems to be coming at us a lot faster than that. So I think we need to step up our game in terms of response time. And I guess in this adjustment, I, I guess at, at some point, you know, we'll, some people you know, will leave the workforce, but maybe some of those people will be retrained to you know, manage the robots or manage the AI is, I guess, the, the, the hope um, in that. Um, I want to uh, just, I guess, pivot to a little bit uh, to the political economy sort of discussion around AI. So I, I'm curious, like, you know, what do you think about um, when we you know, talk about AI in the context of sort of totalitarian countries like China, where you know they're using AI, you know, for I, I guess suppression of uh, of its people? I, I'm curious, like you know, there's a sort of idea that was promoted um, by Milton Friedman that's partially related to uh, the work that uh, Drone and, and yourself have done. Milton Friedman's argument, this is like the first chapter of Capitalism and Freedom, you know, the idea is that you know, growth would cause democracy or economic freedom would cause political freedom. Drone and, and, and his co-authors, you know, the sort of institutional framework, I think, has also made some arguments that democracy also causes economic growth. Like, this thing with China, I, I think, hasn't quite played out. You know, it's still 
uh, not a politically free society, but it has experienced quite a bit of growth in, in recent uh, decades um, that may be fading now. Um, but I think something that Friedman acknowledged later in life was that, that what he had argued in, in Capitalism and Freedom was not playing out with, with China, that you know, uh, uh, having, becoming a much more prosperous society did not ultimately cause uh, it to become democratic. And, and to this day, is not democratic. How do you think things like AI are sort of disrupting these traditional processes of sort of growth and democracy as being something that we would get together in some sort of endogenous relationship? How do you see that impacting that uh, symbiotic relationship? Well, I think there's been a problem there for a while. I remember, for some reason, this vivid image of Milton Friedman in Hong Kong. I think it was his PBS special, talking, yeah, talking about capitalism and freedom exactly this way. And I remember thinking, well, that's good. All we need to do is get growth, then we become more like Hong Kong. And the first time I went to Hong Kong, probably in the early 1990s, I was quite impressed. But I think all that have not been recently, but all the stories from Hong Kong, including right now, are, are quite discouraging in terms of the way in which freedom, in any Friedman sense or, or any sense, has been suppressed and, 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 and it's become an oppressive place. So I think that's a wake-up call. Now, what is AI a technology for liberation, a technology for self-expression, or is it a technology for surveillance and, and, and suppression? And the answer is yes, it's both. Right? And it depends on how you use it. So I think that the, the new split in the world is going to be between countries that are more like us and are going to put, I, I think we'll have to put a, a lot of guardrails around surveillance, for example. Uh, and that's a good thing. And then there'll be other countries that put no guardrails around surveillance with regard to state surveillance, certainly. And they'll be following China. And, and they will be following a certain line of technology. And if you think about, you know, being authoritarian is, is, is obviously a a set of policies and it's, and it's implemented by a technology. So how much does it cost you to be an authoritarian or run an authoritarian regime? Well, I think the AI as developed by the Chinese is going to make it a lot cheaper to be authoritarian. So, you know, if you think in terms of an incentive framework, we're going to have more authoritarians and they're going to last for longer, facilitated by the same technology that I hope, I believe, we will use to strengthen freedom and, and, and true liberty in the United States. One of the interesting things uh, I, I think about this book is that it, it really talks about technology in a, in a sort of more uh, political sense. Um, and, and it's not usually a frame that we typically, you know, as economists or, or casual readers, really think about technology. Um, it, it seems to me like it's only been recently where we think about, you know, the, the politics of big tech and, and censorship, and obviously that's a very big um, topic right now. Um, but you know, traditionally, it's you know usually been oh you know great we we have iPhones now or we have computers now you know this is great we can do things faster you know traditionally uh, at least in my own lifetime, technology sort of had a, a relatively sort of positive uh, a sort of connotation with it. I'm just like, what are your favorite examples from your book about this this sort of struggle where elites have used sort of technology in some sort of way um, that may not have been to promote broad-based prosperity as much as, you know, it could have otherwise uh, had, had been. I'm curious, um, or what are some of the examples in the book that you, you sort of outline? Well, I think, I think the most awful example is the cotton gin, right, which was um, developed right at the end of the 18th century, uh, right after American independence. It made it easier to process upland cotton. It meant you could run cotton plantations away from the East Coast across the Deep South. And what happened, of course, was enslaved people were moved from a very harsh life on the East Coast into a much worse conditions um, across the Deep South, and, and that became the mainstay of the, the slave economy, and, and that lasted uh, and, and remained, you know, with, with, with extremely harsh conditions and, until the Civil War. And of course, that was also facilitated and supported 
or driven by industrialization in Britain, which was about cotton and cotton textiles, and they were buying a lot of the raw cotton from the American South. So I think that it's actually rather pervasive throughout history that some people gain and other people lose from the deployment of technology. Much more unusual, and, and you know, with the sort of the holy grail we're looking for here is the sort of Henry Ford experience, where Henry Ford automates car production, brings electricity to the factory. He uh, replaces a lot of workers, but he also generates a vast number of new tasks. And there's a, there's a class of, we, uh, some people call them, and we, we've adopted the term, manager engineers, white collar workers, who emerge to plan this, to organize it, to, to run the, um, the, all the infrastructure around car production. And, and that's a lot of people, and, and that is a, a lot of money that's made and very high wages that, that are paid through sharing. Uh, I don't think uh, Henry Ford was that altruistic. I think he was quite paternalistic. But he, he faced some countervailing power, including trade unions, so he wanted to preempt that with high wages. And uh, he also had to, at some point, uh, negotiate with the unions and, and have uh, collective, collective bargains. But that was in a context of, you know, the company did well, his family did well, the whole auto industry did well. So finding that kind of win-win approach, win-win solution, we did a lot of that before, during, and after World War II. After 1980, it's become much more unusual. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to think, I guess, in the, in the past uh, few decades that uh, we've had these productivity gains, but we haven't quite had real wage gains to sort of follow that. Do, do you have like a, a favorite explanation of, of why that's um, not like history, you know, following you know, his, as much historically uh, as it's been the case that you know, real wage gains have generally followed productivity gains? Do you, there's a lot of, I feel like, different narratives that are told uh, about why this is the case, but... Right. So, so uh, real wages obviously gained for, have risen for some people, more skilled people. It's for the lower, less skilled, less educated people that they haven't risen. Uh, I, you know, I think the, the, the main contenders are automation and globalization. And, I, you know, Dron's work with Pascual Restrepo says that automation is 60 to 70 percent of the explanation. I think even if you lowered it a little bit and said, well, I think globalization, the China shock is a bigger part of it. You have to remember that the China, that, that, that there's a technology dimension to globalization, including communication, including computers being applied to trade. And so if you look at this, I would say the direct effect of, of uh, technology change and automation and the indirect effect through globalization and the shifts in where you put certain kinds of jobs, including manufacturing jobs, I think you're looking at 70 to 80% being attributable one way or another to the way in which technology has changed. I do think that attitudes among management have also changed. I've, you know, I've looked at a lot of literature, what managers were writing, what executives were saying, what people who led industrial organizations were saying in the 1920s, they were nowhere near as confrontational and antagonistic to workers as, as, as more recently. They were much more, you know, much more patting themselves on the back and saying, hey, it, capitalism is a win-win. In fact, Herbert Hoover was, is a perfect example of exactly this. And that's why the Republicans were so strong in, the, in, the, um, in control of the presidency in the 1920s in, in the US, because they, was, they were seen as, as, as the men, they were men of business. Right? and that everybody could gain from that. So there was a shared prosperity moment. Okay, a particular rock was hit in terms of the Great Depression, but there was also recovery uh, from that. And Eisenhower is another Republican who was regarded as a, a practical man. Okay, he was a military general, but he was also you know, pro-business, and business. the business of America was, was doing business. I mean, it's also interesting to think about you know, the 1920s, even though we, we think it was a time of you know, prosperity. I mean, it's, it's also the time of you know, zoning laws, became legal in the U.S., and, and the whole immigration system is sort of created as we know it today, sort of two of the largest sort of barriers to, uh, to, to entry um, were, were, were created during that time. It's a very interesting sort of time period in, in general. Th things that probably didn't have much great effects until much, much later on. But it, it's interesting, too, on, on points of disruption, too, it's also, I think, like a regional thing as well, where the automation certainly impacts, you know, it's 
to the automobile industry, which is very much rooted in the Midwest, whereas you know, the China shock you know, impacts textiles, which very much impacts the Appalachians. So two very different geographical areas with you know, two different regional labor markets being disrupted in, in different ways. Do you have any thoughts on, on the Luddites? Um, you know, this whole term, you know, it's sort of a famous term you know, to call, um, you know, it's, it's used in a derogatory sense toward, toward folks that maybe you know, spout left-leaning tendencies. But you know, it's, it's very relevant and probably one of the historical examples I would think of first where you know, it's this famous story of, uh, and it may be apocryphal, I'm not totally sure, but you know, it's this idea that you know, people were destroying these textile machines, I think, in the you know, 1800s. Do you think that, you know, that that's kind of like a relevant example here of, uh, and I'm not sure if it's an apocryphal story or not, I think there's someone who, I think, uh, there's, a, I think, a famous person associated with that as well. Yeah, well, Lord Byron gave some great yes. speeches about it, and that's it. That's in our book. Yeah, the Luddites were not, were not apocryphal. The, the, Ned Ludd, the, whether there was somebody called Ned Ludd, that is yes, questionable. That's Perhaps is. not. But look, at the, the, so the Luddites were, depending on how you read the history, they were either skilled workers who were, who were threatened by the um, arrival of textile factories and, and automated uh, looms, so they were losing the weaving jobs that they had before. Or I would actually say they were independent entrepreneurs because by any standard like IRS definition today, they had their own equipment, they worked at home, they controlled their own hours, right? they had a lot of autonomy, and, they, and, and actually either they weren't being offered jobs in the factory or if they had to come into the factory, they had to uh, take on relatively routine tasks, relatively unskilled tasks, um, which were uh, supervising the, the, the machinery that, that took care of what they'd previously done uh, by, by, with skill in an artisanal fashion. So I think that um, if you see them as independent entrepreneurs who were threatened by the growth of big business, <laughs> you, you, that you, people could be a little more sympathetic. But I think honestly also, stop trying to prevent automation and prevent the elimination of, of jobs by machines is tilting at windmills. However, it doesn't mean that's the only thing that, you, that, that can happen or should happen. And in some phases of industrial development, including when the railways came to Britain in the, about the same time or slightly after the, the, the big light uprising, that created a lot of new tasks, a lot of new jobs, and a lot of jobs in which the railways wanted to pay premium wages to their workers because they wanted them to take care of safety on the railways. Actually, that was an absolutely key issue. Be very responsible in a relatively independent way. So I think technology can and has been developed in ways that generate new tasks and a lot of new tasks at the same time as it automates existing work. After 1980, we had less task creation than we really needed. We have le less, um, the demand for relatively unskilled labor has been weak. We haven't been able to turn that around. And there is a concern that AI will worsen that problem or maybe layer on some other versions of that problem now. And I don't think it has to be that way. I think we could push, and, and the industry could certainly push to develop um, algorithms and, and um, approaches that would complement human abilities. So don't replace humans, make them more productive, augment their capabilities, and we would say, to the extent that raises marginal worker productivity, pay them a high wage. I want to get back to this uh, sort of broader topic of growth in institutions. Uh, you know, obviously, it's uh, you know, a highly related sort of political economy topic here. Can you explain which institutions matter? For me, I've always been sold that government policy and politics matter for economic growth, uh, however we want to describe that, you know, called institutions. Um, but I think the key question is, you know, it's always been, you know, which institutions or policies matter? And I think this uh, really summarizes a lot of your work uh, as well as um, a lot of Jerome's work. Um, can you explain what your taxonomy of institutions um, is and what ones are, uh, are, are most important? 
Well, I think a central um, institution on, on the economic side is property rights. And that has to be supported by political rights. And if you go back to the situation in Hong Kong, for example, where which had very strong property rights, limited political rights under the British, but they were definitely there, those political rights have been stripped away. And I think the property rights are under great pressure as a result. But I would also say that if, if you think about big technological transformations and think about uh, what happens in those transformations, there's often a phase in which things that were regarded as common property and, and shared or, or worked in, in a common way and maybe worked quite productively like common land in medieval Britain, there is an episode or, or, or part of the modernization of, of Britain in which that land is turned into private property. It, it's The communal rights are, are stripped out and they're not well protected. The private property is, is then accumulated, becomes a big source of wealth, which is, and that wealth is used politically to take more common land uh, into private property. I think the same thing is happening now with data. There was a lot of data we put on the internet, a lot of data we allowed other people to look at and to, and to use through social media, for example. Those data are now being used to train algorithms in ways that were not being compensated, they didn't ask for permission. You may not like, I would predict that you wouldn't like, some of the surveillance outcomes that are going to come from you know, pictures that, that, that you and others posted on, on, on Facebook. And, and that, I think, is exactly analogous to that taking of common property without permission or forcing it through in the enclosure movement in, in, in Britain before the Industrial Revolution. And I, and I think that, prop, that recognizing and respecting property rights on the internet, including the rights to the data that you've created and the images that you've put there, that's actually really important. And if we could get some recognition of that, and we're already behind the curve, uh, there, aren't, there isn't sufficient legislation, for example, on that, uh, and there won't be any time soon, but if we could address that, I think that would also help us a lot with regards to what we can ask from tech companies, what we can expect from them, and, and maybe some of the political consequences also. So this is like the, the Coast theorem for, uh, for data, I, I, I guess, uh, the idea is that, that we should be compensated at some level for the, the data that, we're, we're, um, that, that these companies are, are selling to some degree? Uh, yes, I mean, I don't think the amount of compensation, I don't think it's worth that much. I don't think it's going <laughs> to enable you to retire. But I do think recognizing that it's your property and you should have a say in how it's used. And you should be able to say, no, this is my data and you're not allowed to use it for workplace surveillance that I don't believe is, is good for me or for other people around me. Right. So I think that, and you can only do that if those property rights are, are properly defined and, and, and protected. We won't be able to protect them individually because we're too small relative to the companies. But if we could form data unions on whatever basis, that then becomes an interesting conversation. So, so that, that you think is really um, scope for like a regulatory authority? I guess something like the FTC or, or, or a body like that, uh, in the US at least, that could, um, that, that could I, I guess, impose some sort of changes on, on big tech companies. Well, I, you would certainly need legislation to assert that uh, there are such things as ownership over data and to put those restrictions on it. Would it then need to run through a regulatory body? Would you need to grant that regulator, regulatory power to someone? Uh, yes, uh, probably. Uh, although I think I would prefer a body that was very focused on protecting consumers and, and not didn't have multiple tasks. I think when you give these regulators, you know, you say, worry about market structure, um, worry about conduct and, and other things. Oh, and worry about data protection. That is not necessarily going to be their top uh, priority. That's fascinating. Um, it's, it's so amazing to think about um, you know, just all, all these um, huge questions uh, around uh, technology, political economy, um, growth, institutions. This has been an amazing uh, discussion. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Simon. Thank you. Today, our guest was Simon Johnson, who is the Ronald Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at the MIT Sloan School of Management. 
was previously chief economist of the IMF. He just co-authored a newly published book with his MIT colleague, Daron Ajamoglu, Power and Progress, Our 1,000-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. I highly recommend you check it out at your local bookstore. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Harley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.